We are continuing our series in the book of Genesis. We've got a big chunk of scripture to get through today. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 8 through to Genesis chapter 9, verse 17. We'll be following along. Starting in Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the windows of the ark that he had made and sent forth the raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth the dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot and returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wives, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons, and his wives, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animals and some of every clean bird and burned uh, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps in the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning, and from every beast I will require it from man. And from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and subdue it. And God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living thing that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off 
by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living thing that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So last week, when we were in the story of Noah's Ark, we saw the Ark as a picture of salvation. That this amazing narrative of God's judgment on the world, uh, we see also this narrative of God's salvation. We see Jesus more clearly through this imagery of the ark. Uh, just as the waves of God's wrath crashed against the ark and the ark kept those who were inside safe, so also does God's wrath crash against Jesus and those who are in Christ are kept safe by him. And this story is so iconic, it's so accessible, it's like a a favorite for children, uh, and it's captured the imagination of people and cultures all around the world. And it's so simple, this story of seeing God's salvation. It's so simple to see God's uh, rescuing uh, through his judgment, which is really important if you want to understand the gospel. You have to understand that the rescue is actually from God's judgment. And the ark has become a picture of the church. You are in Jesus Christ, you are part of his church, you are adopted into his family, and you are kept safe as if you went into the ark as well. We are adopted out of sinful humanity into his family, not because we are holy and righteous in and of ourselves. We know this, right? Because we have been studying the gospel over and over and over again. And it's not by that, but it's by the sheer mercy and grace of God that we are included. And so in this passage, I want to bring to light three things. The first thing that I want to bring to light is the end of the old world. We're going to look at the end of the old world. Number two is the beginning of a new world. And my last point will be a hope for our world. So we're going to start with my first point, the end of the old world. And we saw last week the judgment of God comes suddenly upon the world in such magnitude and devastation, uh, such that the world has never seen before. In fact, it has never seen since. Everywhere on the surface of the planet was destroyed and restructured so much that you can see the evidence of all of this uh, destruction on every altitude, on every continent. It doesn't matter where you go, whether you're in the Himalayas or you're in the Arizona desert, you will see the evidence of this worldwide flood. And in verse 1, we see that God remembered Noah and the livestock, and, and God causes this wind to blow, which seems to speed up the work of gravity on the water. This wind is blowing and causing the water to abate uh, rather quickly. And you can get a good image of it if you ever want to go and it's like hurricane force winds and see the way that the wind just pushes the sea onto land. It's quite amazing, the power of wind. Uh, but the water is beginning to settle into the place that we know them now. The ocean basins and uh, the Great Lakes and freezing into glaciers and seeping back down into the earth. Uh, we know that in the mantle of the earth, there is 10 times the volume of the uh, world's oceans in water just in the earth's mantle, which is mind-boggling if you try to think about it. Uh, but the flood itself, according to the scripture we see here, only took about 40 days and 40 nights. 
It wasn't that long. But as we can see from the text, it took a lot longer for the waters to subside. It was a quick, sudden, ferocious judgment, but it took a long time for it to return to normal. And the ark we see finds its place on the Ararat mountain range in modern day Turkey. Now, I don't think anyone's been there. It's probably not a popular site to go to. It's a very arid sort of location. Uh, but these mountains are enormous. They're about 5,000 meters tall, which puts them well over twice the height of Mount Kosciuszko. Uh, they're pretty much um, uninhabitable, cold. Uh, once upon a time, they were greatly volcanic. In fact, the last eruption was in the 1800s. It's a pretty intense sort of mountain range. Um, and the ark finds its rest in this mountain range. And so he opens up a window and he sends out a raven. Now, Noah probably didn't know his birds that well, but sending out the raven probably was the wrong choice because the raven went out and went to and fro and never came back. So Noah makes a smarter decision and he sends out a dove and the dove returns. And that's how he knows what's going on outside. And so he sends this dove out and this dove is going to tell him what's going on. And at this stage, the, the flood had considerably abated. Uh, the land has begun to dry, uh, but it's impossible to see it if you were inside the ark. Because if you started opening it up, and you know it was waterproof because of the pitch that he put in it, if you started opening it up and taking off the covering, and then all of a sudden the flood came back, you're in big trouble. So you didn't really get much of an opportunity to see what was going on. So the dove was going to be that for Noah. And so the land is dry, and uh, things are begin, beginning to settle down, and seeds begin to germinate. And these seeds that have been floating on the waters for a long time, seeds can survive for a considerable amount of time, especially um, across the ocean. That's how we have islands populated with vegetation. So the seeds had to uh, travel across the sea. And sprouts are beginning to shoot up off the ground. And at this point, the dove returns with a freshly picked olive leaf. No doubt from a little olive shrub that has just sprouted up. But it wasn't done yet. You know why? the dove returns. It found nowhere to roost. It found nowhere to make its home. It waits another seven days, releases the dove, and it doesn't return. And that's how Noah knows it's ready. The world world is finally done away with, and it's beginning to be remade as plant life springs up and it begins to grow on the face of the earth. And so Noah, I no doubt, finally works up the courage after this moment to take the covering off the ark. And he takes it off because once you've done it, you can't put it back on. I mean, I'm sure you can put it back on with a little bit of work, but not from the inside of the ark. And so he takes the covering off and he looks out of the ark and he sees that there is land all around him. And it is that point that God tells him, leave the ark. And he commands everyone in the ark to leave by their families. And they begin to leave the ark and are given a very specific commandment. One we've heard before. Be fruitful multiply. Remember this one? Genesis chapter 1? This is going to lead us to the second point, the beginning of the new world. A new world, this new world is going to look very different to the old world. But in many ways, we're going to see it's still the same. Being fruitful and multiplying is the same type of language we've seen, as I said, and it's a great indication that this is a reset. We are now seeing a reset of the world. God has decided to destroy the world and reset it, to reform it, to do something different. God is starting over again with Noah and these new animals. 
And it's a wonderful, uh, it speaks a wonderful picture to what God wants on his planet. He wants life to be teeming. He wants it to be swarming. He wants it to be overflowing. He wants life to be in abundance. He wants this to be a, a place that is rich with his love. You see, uh, you, I don't know, some of you guys have been to the um, Great Barrier Reef. I'd love to go there one day to see the life that's teeming in these coral reefs. Uh, different areas of the world, when you see life teeming and these ecosystems working in order, you can see what God has for his world. To be fertile, to be rich, to be overflowing, to be abundant. It's a great picture of God's love for us. And so they go out by families, one group at a time, and begin to repopulate this new world. And Noah begins his life in this new world by doing what any sane person would do after just witnessing what he had just witnessed. He thanks God. And he thanks God in the way that any other ancient man of his time would have done so. He builds an altar, and he takes some of every clean animal, and he offers some burnt offerings. And it's fascinating that you go, no matter what culture you go, no matter where around the world, in the ancient world, burnt offerings was a staple. It's something we don't practice anymore. But back in these times, this was standard. And the last sacrifice we saw was with Cain and Abel. So we know this thing was a practice in the world at the time. And we have this very interesting phrase. I don't know if you guys glossed over it when I read it. It says, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice. Have you ever wondered about what's going on here? Why does God seem to care about the way that a sacrifice would smell? Well, in the scriptures, we see that when God accepts a sacrifice, it is described as a pleasing aroma. When he accepts it, it's always described as a pleasing aroma. And I believe this is another example of anthropomorphic language, if you remember me talking about that a few weeks ago. Uh, it makes God more relatable and more human without compromising his holiness and his righteousness. It's language that we're supposed to take figuratively. I'll give you an example for it. For instance, Deuteronomy 26.8. Have a look at the language here. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now, if you read this and thought... Hang on a minute, did God literally like reach down with his huge heavenly hand and then scoop up all of Israel and then bring them out and put them into the promised land? If you read it that way, you would be reading it wrong. Because we know from what the Bible says that God used many different means in order to rescue his people, but we get what this language is trying to communicate to us. We immediately see it. We see that God was the force behind it. He was sovereign in such a way that he may as well have scooped them up and brought them there. Because of how he was so intimately involved and how he brought them up. And so God accepts Noah's sacrifice and makes a resolution to never bring this judgment again on the earth. Verse 21, chapter 8. says that the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now we are well aware that floods still happen. We are well aware that floods still happen. We're on the tail end of some pretty crazy floods. I've been stuck at Singleton for about an hour and 20 minutes because of some of the, uh, the floods that were on there. I don't know, Pete's probably super happy that he's got time off work, doesn't have to go up that way with all the floods going on. Uh, and what is promised here is that God will no longer strike down every living creature in the same way. Not that there won't be floods, or that floods won't cause devastation, or that there wouldn't be tsunamis, or huge volumes of water that will 
bring death and destruction to different areas. What's promised is that there will never be a universal flood. You never have to fear a universal flood. Until the earth is done away with, there will always be seasons and harvest and days and nights. That's gradual, consistent cycle that will happen, will always happen until the earth no longer remains. This new world sounds pretty great until we realize what we skipped over. Sin has not been dealt with. Sin and death still remain. It says God won't curse the ground anymore because of man. But the text also mentions something again that is fundamental to human nature, and that's that we are sinful. And it says here we are affected by sin from childhood. The intention of man's heart is evil. Hard language, and we saw this last week. Speaking stuff that is just so uh, controversial and so uh, offensive to people in the 21st century to hear this kind of language. But it's true. We're tainted. Even our good deeds are tainted by sin. Even us in our best time when we're doing whatever we should be doing, sin is always there. Like this little nugget of sin, always tainting every single thing that we do. This new world, this new reset brought about by God still has sin in it. It still needs a savior. And God is allowing the human story to continue despite our sinful nature, which is quite gracious. It's quite amazing that God allows us to continue. He is going to remain gracious to us despite our tendency to walk away and become futile and become worthless and exchange the glory of God for other things. At the start of chapter 9, we see this reiteration of the command of Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply. It's almost a new creation, a new starting point, a new reset. It's the beginning of a new world. I mean, this new world has some good perks. I'm sure um, some of you guys were very thankful for verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. <laughs> and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Uh, depending on your view about whether or not you can eat meat, if you're vegetarian or not, you'll think this is either a good provision or a bad provision. I know where I sit on this category, and I know that I'm very thankful that a good Scotch fillet steak is at any moment I can just cook it up and have a good, good time. Uh, verse 2 says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast. I remember it, one of my earliest memories, very bizarrely, I just thought of it right now, was being really frustrated that birds wouldn't let me get near them. Like, I just wanted to pat them and, like, cuddle them and things like that. I'm just this little three-year-old boy wanting to play with the birds, and the birds always flew away, and it was very frustrating. And it's because the fear of you and the dread of you have come upon these animals. Now everything that moves is given to us as food. The animals before, which had a sort of a friendly attitude towards human beings, now have a hostile and antagonistic one. These things can be overcome, obviously, by taming creatures, but largely the world is marked by the survival of the fittest. In this new world, it's kill or be killed, and animals are now afraid of humanity. Not because we have claws or scary teeth or we're particularly that big, but because we have the image of God, which sets us apart. We have a relatively big brain as well. And these animals instinctively fear us because of our intellectual faculties that set us apart and make us cunning and devious and able to fashion things that we can use to our benefit. It doesn't matter how big a creature is. Think of the whalers that would cruise around on the sea and just take down whales. 
who, what human does that? Like just thinks, look at these enormous sea creatures, we're going to kill them with harpoons. But humans can amazingly do so much devastation and damage, we can kill everything. These animals instinctively should fear us. They're going to learn to run away when they see us. They're not going to like us getting too close, something that I didn't notice as a three-year-old kid, but something that you grow up to realize. And God had given every green plant to eat, but now he gives humanity meat. And so the dirty process of killing and skinning and butchering an animal is now here. Whereas before, it was probably a lot easier to uh, eat when we had these green plants that gave us our fruit. But in a flood-ravaged world, the access to nutrients and all the things that we would have needed to survive was now scarce. It wasn't possible. We were going to need meat to make up these requirements. And there is one thing that Noah needed to remember. Verse 4. You shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. Before you eat of any animal, you needed to drain the blood out of the animal. And this is a part of the covenantal agreement that God makes here with Noah. Most of this covenant is, here's all this stuff. This is what I'm going to do for you. This is my covenant with you. But there's one caveat. Well, there's a couple of caveats, and this is one of them. You shall not eat any creature with its blood in it. You need to drain the blood. Noah was given permission to eat of any animal, and there are some animals that I'm, you know, I'm glad I have permission to eat them, but you're not going to find me eating them anytime soon. But if you put me in a like man versus wild situation, I might be tempted to eat it. But everything is now available. It wasn't until Leviticus that we get this, uh, you know, uh, the system of dietary laws. But before that, every food was available to us. In Leviticus as well, when it comes to the sacrificial law system, when an animal was sacrificed, its blood plays an important role. When you sacrifice a creature, you sacrifice it with its blood. When you eat a creature, you drain it of its blood. And this is important imagery, because blood plays an important role in the Bible as a means of atonement. As we see in Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It says here that there is to be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And we know that this has caught up within the gospel message that Jesus poured his blood out for us, that it spilled so that atonement could be made. But there is a caveat and a qualification, and that there is to be no shedding of human blood. You can shed the blood of animals and eat them, but there's one animal you cannot shed the blood of. And if you want to push it even further, an animal you cannot eat either. And that is a human being. And if you kill a human being, whatever kills it, whether it's an animal or a human being, God said he requires a reckoning. And this is another way of saying that God requires justice. He requires it to be made right. And this is how he says that we are to make it right. Human beings are made in the image of God, and any such unlawful killing of a human is an assault on the Creator. For deliberate homicide, God requires that the murderer be put to death. Verse 5. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The human beings are distinct 
because the human being alone is made in God's image. God also indicates how he is going to get this justice. It will be brought judicially by other human beings. This is what we know as the death penalty, a very controversial issue today. Our country has largely uh, abolished the death penalty for at least 50 years, but technically probably a lot longer. It's inescapable doing any honest exegesis and understanding of the Bible that the Bible is pro-death penalty. It's inescapable. But the Bible, in the case of first-degree murder, says death. And it's worth noting that the Bible makes distinctions between manslaughter and premeditated murder. In the latter case, justice requires that the murderer be put to death. And in the beginning of this new world, you've got to understand that this is a new world now. What was the problem of the old world? Violence, bloodshedding, murder. That was one of the biggest problems of the old world. And so in this world, God is establishing his covenant with Noah and indicating that this world will be marked by restraint. And here we find the beginning of the judicial system as far as we are aware in the Bible. The old world was full of violence, murder, bloodshed. Here God says that this new world must be marked by restraint and that restraint must come from other humans. We must restrain ourselves. We must set up systems that restrain us. And praise God that we have these systems because we know if these systems are taken away, we know what's going to happen to society. We, we go down into bloodshed and violence again. We go down into all sorts of oppression and abuse. And it's the foundation for all civilized societies that criminals must be punished. We may differ in our definition, definitions of what this punishment should look like, but in the Noahic covenant, we know what murder should be punished by, and that's death. We've seen passages like Romans 13, where the sword is given to the state to administer justice against the evildoer. So when was the sword given to the state? Genesis 9. was when the sword was given to the state. And note that this may put a bitter feeling in your heart thinking about what's necessary, but these are the things that God has given to us for our flourishing and for our good. These are the things that are given to us so that we can form these societies and be safe and be secure. God cared very deeply about every human being ever made in his image. And they have a right to life. And that cannot be taken away by anyone else. But if you take someone else's life, you forfeit your own. That's what's going on. And so this new world bore the curse. It was still full of sin. And was the state a good, you know, was, was that a good way to restrain human sin, the state? Sometimes an amazing way. And other times, the state was the one bearing this iniquity. But there's one more element to this covenant. Brings me to my third point. A hope for our world. We know what this covenant is. God will never again flood this world. This will never happen again in a universal flood. This is a covenant he makes with all creatures. And he gives us a sign. 
that this great extinction event will never occur in the same way. In fact, the phrase never again will show up twice. Check this out, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The flood will never be repeated. Never again, twice, shows up. Our small image of hope in our world, God set this sign for us, and we all know what it is. We all tell this story to our children. It's a rainbow. And every time it rains, and fear comes upon you, thinking, when is this rain going to stop? And the rain stops and a rainbow comes out, and you remember, oh yeah, God said he was never going to destroy the world like this again. Now, for us, we kind of want rain. Not in the quantity we just got, but as a general rule, we get excited when rain comes. But if you were Noah and rain comes, you start to get a bit of PTSD, don't you? It starts to become a bit of an issue. And then every time that rainbow comes out, you're like, oh yes, that's right. This isn't going to happen again. You start running for the ark, trying to gather a few sheep or something. Let's get in, boys. Now you might be tempted uh, to think that God is now just created this rainbow. Now before, rainbows weren't a thing, but now God has just created rainbows. But the Hebrew verb tense is in the perfect. Now the problem with Hebrew verbs and their tenses is that it's really hard to get it into English because we don't have the same kind of tenses. But it implies that the rainbow was there before now. That's what this verb tense shows us. And the rainbow we know is a simple refraction of water vapor that would have been present before the flood. But the significance of a rainbow wasn't known until now. Now the rainbow has significance. Now the rainbow matters. And I imagine rain, you know, would have been a problem, but now the rainbow comes out and, oh, it's a sign. It means something now. And it means more than just a pot of gold at the end of it. It means that God will never flood us again. Rain is no longer an existential threat to humanity, but a promise. And it gives us hope that this judgment will not overcome us. And we hear this language of remembering. That every time God sees this bow, he'll remember this covenant. This reminds us all the way back in chapter 8-1. Noah is adrift in the waters, in the ark, and it says, But God remembered Noah. And this is one of the most powerful expressions in the Bible. And it's one that gives us hope. What does it mean for God to remember? God is omniscient. So to speak of God forgetting anything would be foolish. It's not like he, you know, Noah kind of slipped out of his mind. And he's like, oh yeah, Noah, that guy. I forgot about that guy drifting in the water. No, that's not what's going on. You can use this word remember either positively or negatively. In the negative, it means, oh, I've forgotten this thing. Oh, but now I remember it. Oh, my keys, I left them, but I'm going to go get my keys now. And I look like a bit of a fool. I was going out to the gym one morning and I, you know, got everything ready out to my car. It's five in the morning and I didn't have my keys. I was like, oh no. And I locked the house. I'm like, oh, I'm going to wake up Beck and Calvin in order to get inside. So then I opted to let them sleep and I just sat outside getting eaten by mozzies until she woke up and let me in. 
I'm silly. I'm not omniscient. I don't have all knowledge. When I have to get things and I remember things, it's kind of important. But in the positive, it's something that you can never forget. We all have those moments that are burned into our minds. Whether it was the image of our wife walking down the aisle, the birth of our child, or the moment when Jesus became real to us for the first time. You'll remember that moment because you can never forget it. Noah is not adrift alone in the waters in danger without a soul to care for him. God remembers him. He is saved because God remembers him. Throughout all of scripture, we have these, this theme of God remembering those who are his. He remembers us. Noah is not forgotten by God. He's not even saved because he's in the ark, because the ark could fall apart with some hectic waves. He's saved because he's remembered by God. That is why he's safe in that ark. That is why he's safe at any moment, because God remembers him. He's known by God. His safety is in the fact that God remembers him. God knows him. His safety is in the fact that God loves him and has never forgotten him, even for a moment. He is remembered. And we gloss over the simple language, uh, not realizing how profound these words are. The only reason anyone is saved is because God remembers you, because God knows you, because God loves you. And we're not adrift, floating in life, without hope, without remembrance, but we are remembered by God. And many of us know that we were lost and floating and adrift in life before God came to save us. Like the thief on the cross. Do you remember that? Two thieves crucified beside Jesus. In Luke 23, 42, he cries out to Jesus and he says this. He says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you think Jesus remembered that thief? Verse 43. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And our great hope and confidence is that God has called us out of the world and remembers us. He does not forget you. And you feel forgotten sometimes. And you feel, you wonder where God is. And I wonder if Noah was adrift, scared, worried, on the ark, no sign of God around. And I wonder if he worried, where was God? Is God still here? Does God remember me? And we get this in verse uh, chapter 8. God remembered Noah. And in Jesus, we are all remembered. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, never to be blotted out. Do you know that language about blotting out names from the Lamb's book of life? Do you know what else that language shows up? In the flood, when God blots out mm. all the living. We are remembered. We're the same as the thief. Our salvation lies in this phrase, Jesus, remember me, because that thief knew he could not save himself. He needed Jesus to remember him. He needed Jesus to save him. He needed Jesus to do something. Do you think he had any opportunity to make his wrongs right? Do you think he had any opportunity to get his life in order? He had no opportunity. He was only savable by grace in that moment. He was only savable by grace. And we are wise when we realize that we are the same. We are only savable by grace, by unmerited favor that we did not deserve, but was given lavishly onto us. God remembered Noah. And what God accomplished for us in Jesus through the spilled blood of his son on that altar for a new world, 
a new world way better than this new world that we live in. It's the same world as nowhere inhabits now. We're in that world right now, but Jesus is bringing a new heaven and he's bringing a new earth. And we are kept safe by the power of God. And we are kept safe because God remembers us. If you're in Jesus, whatever you go through, you are remembered. Let's pray. Father, what wonderful words we see here in Genesis. Lord, to think that you remember us, that you know us so deeply and you are constantly there. And Lord, for some of my friends, and I know for myself, Lord, often we can feel adrift on the waters, adrift not knowing what will happen, adrift scared and worried about the promises that you have made, worried if these things are going to come true, and worried if you even know that we exist and we're there. But Lord, we know just like Noah that you remember us, that you have not left us, that you have not abandoned us, but in Jesus we are safe not only from your wrath, but from all things and all your enemies. Father, I pray for my friends here that need encouragement, that feel forgotten. Remind them once again through your Holy Spirit that they are remembered. And for those that wander far and don't know whether they believe or trust in you, Lord, I pray that you would bring them into your ark, the church, and that you would bring them into Jesus so that on that day when they come before you, they will be shielded from all your wrath they will be kept safe and brought into these new heavens where there is joy and peace and hope. I pray for all my friends, would you do this by the Spirit in Jesus' name.